This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 69, for broadcast on the 8th of July, 2020. Coming up on Space Time, discovery of a new type of neutrino from the sun, a new theory as to why Betelgeuse suddenly dimmed so dramatically, and how the European Space Agency has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Scientists have discovered a new type of neutrino being produced by the sun. Physicists with the Borgino experiment detected the new class of neutrino generated by the sun's second most important fusion process, known as the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. Neutrinos are elementary subatomic particles generated through radioactive decay in stars, supernovae, nuclear explosions, particle accelerators and atomic reactors. The neutrino is so named because it's electrically neutral and because its rest mass is so small it was long thought to be zero. Neutrinos are the most common form of matter in the universe. And having almost no mass, they're capable of being accelerated to almost the speed of light. Neutrinos come in three types or flavors. The electron neutrino, the muon neutrino and the tau neutrino. Each has its own specific properties. Now, confusingly, the three flavors of neutrino don't line up with the three mass species. It seems each of the three flavors can be made up of a quantum mixture of the three mass species. So, for example, a particular tau neutrino has bits of all three mass species in it. And those three different mass species allow neutrinos to oscillate between the three flavors. In other words, an electron neutrino produced, say, from a beta decay reaction somewhere, could well interact with a distant detector as a muon or tau neutrino. Neutrinos are also really difficult to observe. That's because they're so incredibly weakly interactive. Right now, for example, there are a trillion of them passing through you every second, yet they go through completely unnoticed. Neutrinos generated by the Sun's primary fusion process, that's the proton-proton chain, are already fairly well understood. But it's the detection of the second group of neutrinos, generated through the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle, that's finally filled in important gaps in science's understanding of the process. Okay, a bit of background. The Sun makes its energy when hydrogen nuclei fuse together to form helium nuclei in the core. This hydrogen burning is described by a sequence of nuclear fusion reactions known as the proton-proton chain, and 99% of the Sun's energy is generated in the stellar core through this process. It begins with two hydrogen nuclei, or protons, combining to form the nucleus of deuterium isotope, in the process emitting a positron, which is the antimatter version of an electron, together with an electron neutrino. Another proton then collides with the deuterium isotope, forming a helium-3 isotope, and releasing a gamma-ray photon. When two helium-3 isotopes fuse together, they form helium-4, releasing two protons in the process, and so the chain continues. This process converts some 0.7% of the total mass of the four protons into pure energy, while the remaining 99.3% results in a helium nucleus. However, a small amount of energy is also produced through another process in the Sun called the CNO, or carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. It's a six-stage stellar nuclear synthesis process in which a carbon-12 nucleus captures a proton and then emits a gamma-ray photon while producing nitrogen-13. And because it's unstable, nitrogen-13 then emits a beta particle and decays into carbon-13. 
Beta particles are high-energy, high-speed electrons, and their antimatter counterparts, positrons, which are emitted by radioactive decay in atomic nuclei. The carbon-13 then captures a proton to become nitrogen-14 by emitting a gamma-ray photon. Then the nitrogen-14 catches another proton to become oxygen-15 by emitting another gamma-ray photon. The oxygen-15 then becomes nitrogen-15 through beta decay, and the nitrogen-15 then captures a proton to produce a helium nucleus. A helium nucleus is what's called an alpha particle, and as well as the alpha particle, there's also another carbon-12 atom that's produced, and so the cycle can go on repeating itself. Okay, so that's the background. Now, for the first time, scientists with the Bozzino experiment have identified neutrinos from the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. Bozzino detected neutrinos from the proton-proton chain way back in 2014, but until now, none had been identified from the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. Giacchino Renucci from Italy's National Institute for Nuclear Physics in Milan says the findings have now completely unraveled the two processes powering the sun. The Bozzino detector is located deep underground at the Gran Sasso National Laboratory in Italy. The detector is the world's most radio-pure liquid scintillator calorimeter. It's positioned in a stainless steel sphere containing signal detector photomultiplier tubes and shielded by a water tank to protect it against external radiation. Every now and then, one of the trillions of neutrinos passing through the detector will collide with an electron in such a way as to produce a photon, which can then be picked up as a flash of light by the photomultiplier. Scientists have spent years fine-tuning the experiment in order to detect the elusive neutrinos that herald the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. Although difficult to observe, the experiment has confirmed that these particles are plentiful, with around 700 million neutrinos from the sun's carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle passing through every square centimetre every second. Studying these particles revealed to scientists details about the sun's metallicity, that is its composition of elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. That's because the rate at which the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle neutrinos are produced depends on the sun's content of carbon, nitrogen and oxygen. Different types of measurements currently disagree about the sun's actual metallicity, with one technique suggesting a higher metallicity than another. In the future, more sensitive measurements of carbon-nitrogen-oxygen neutrinos could help scientists disentangle this problem. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new theory as to why Betelgeuse suddenly dimmed so dramatically and how the European Space Agency has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study suggests massive star spots could have been the cause of the recent mysterious and unprecedented dimming of the red supergiant star Betelgeuse. A report in the Astrophysical Journal Letters claims star spots, which like sunspots are cooler regions of the star's surface caused by electromagnetic field lines, may have covered up to 70% of the red giant's photosphere, its visible surface. Betelgeuse, you probably know it better as Betelgeuse, is usually the ninth brightest star in the night sky, clearly visible with the unaided eye as the brightest star in the constellation Orion, representing the scorpion sting on Orion's shoulder or armpit. The massive star, located some 643 light years away, suddenly and dramatically lost about 40% of its luminosity between October 2019 and April 2020. Betelgeuse is a semi-regular variable star, and astronomers have been watching it dim and brighten over and over again for more than a century. But its dramatic rate of dimming during this latest event shocked scientists. 
and that even led some astronomers to speculate that it was about to explode as a core-collapse supernova. Calculations of its mass range from slightly under 10 to a little over 20 times that of our Sun, with about 100,000 times the Sun's luminosity. Betelgeuse is so huge that were it placed where our Sun is at the centre of our solar system, its visible surface would extend almost as far as the orbit of Jupiter, easily engulfing the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars and the main asteroid belt. Betelgeuse is thought to have a complex and tumultuous surface that frequently throws out very impressive flares. It began its life as a spectral type OB blue star about 10 million years ago. Now, high-mass stars like Betelgeuse burn through their nuclear fuel supplies, fusing core hydrogen into helium really quickly. And once the hydrogen's gone, gravity causes the core to contract, increasing in pressure and temperature until it's hot enough to ignite core helium fusion. That then fuses into carbon and oxygen, while a shell of hydrogen starts fusing into helium around the core. Now eventually the star's core will fuse heavier and heavier elements until ultimately it forms iron and no matter how big the star is, it can't fuse iron into anything heavier and that means the fusion process stops. And without the outwards energy of nuclear fusion counteracting the inwards pull of gravity, gravity wins, the star collapses and it triggers a supernova. When Betelgeuse does explode, it'll temporarily outshine all the other stars in the galaxy, easily outshining our moon and be clearly visible in the daytime sky from Earth. Astronomers think stars of Betelgeuse's mass usually only live for about 8 or 9 million years, meaning it could theoretically go supernova any day now, although in astronomical terms that could mean tomorrow, but it could also mean a million years from now. And that's why people have been getting so excited. Was the dimming a sign of an explosion to come? The problem is, past dimming and brightening patterns suggest that Betelgeuse goes through cycles of brightness in two co-occurring patterns. There's a short period cycle lasting 425 days and a longer cycle lasting six years. And what they think's happened is that these two separate patterns, these two separate cycles, began to sync up this time round. And now that they're moving out of sync, Betelgeuse is getting brighter again. But the cause of this dimming still remains a mystery. And scientists have been discussing a number of possible scenarios to try and explain this behaviour. One hypothesis suggests the production of light-absorbing dust is the most likely cause for the steep decline in brightness. See, because of its size, the gravitational pull on the visible surface of a star like Betelgeuse is less than on a star of the same mass but with a much smaller radius. Therefore, pulsations could eject the outer layers of the star relatively easily. This release gas then cools down and condenses into solid dust-like grains. In fact, that's why red giants are an important source of heavy elements in the universe, the elements from which planets and eventually living organisms evolve. To test this hypothesis, the authors evaluated new and archival data from the Atacama Pathfinder Experiment Apex and the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. These telescopes measure terahertz radiation in the submillimeter range, whose wavelength is a thousand times greater than that of visible light. Invisible to the eye, astronomers have been using them for some time to study interstellar dust, and cool dust in particular glows at these wavelengths. One of the study's authors, Steve Mears from the East Asian Observatory, says he was surprised that Betelgeuse went 20% darker even in the submillimeter wave range. And the thing is that reduction in brightness in the submillimeter range cannot be attributed to an increase in dust production. Instead, the star itself must have caused the brightness change. So what are we left with? Well, the luminosity of a star depends on its diameter and on its surface temperature. Now, if only the size of the star decreases, the luminosity decreases equally in all wavelengths. 
However, temperature changes affect the radiation emitted along the electromagnetic spectrum differently. The authors say the measured darkening in both visible light and at submillimeter wavelengths is evidence of a reduction in the average surface temperature of Betelgeuse, somewhere around 200 degrees Celsius. However, corresponding high-resolution images of Betelgeuse taken in December 2019 showed areas of varying brightness, and that suggests an asymmetric temperature distribution. Now, when you combine that with the new measurements, it all suggests that there are huge star spots covering about 50 to 70% of Betelgeuse's visible surface, with a lower temperature than the surrounding brighter photosphere. Star spots are common on giant stars, but not on this scale. But then again, not much is really known about their evolution. We know sunspots on the surface of our sun decrease and increase over the sun's 11-year solar cycle, and this same thing could well be happening on Betelgeuse as it beats to the sound of its own drum. This is Space Time. Still to come, how the European Space Agency is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, and later in the science report, a new swine flu with pandemic potential has been identified in China. All that and more still to come on Space Time. COVID-19 coronavirus has now infected almost 11 million people around the world, and it's killed more than 520,000 people since first spreading from its epicenter in Wuhan, China. With most nations in lockdown, the European Space Agency has been forced to implement work-from-home operations to keep its missions flying. Scientific, exploration, Earth observation, climate and technology testbed satellites are continuing to produce data and provide services. Since early March, the majority of the workforce at ESOC, that's the European Space Agency's Mission Control Centre in Darmstadt, Germany, have been working from home. But despite the constraints involved, mission managers have been able to continue controlling complex spacecraft manoeuvres and procedures, while at the same time dealing with cats around their feet and dogs needing walkies. Despite the distractions, they've successfully tested a laser communication system, space debris avoidance manoeuvres, a dramatic Earth flyby, and even recovering a spacecraft after it experienced a major power failure. This report from ESA TV. The successful deployment of ESA's latest mission to the Sun, Solar Orbiter, launched on the 10th of February 2020. Today, the corridors of the European Space Operations Centre, ESOC, are empty. Each mission control room has just one or two people. The majority of the operations, planning and monitoring work for 21 spacecraft is taking place in nearby homes. It's a strange feeling to be uh, preparing uh, commands in, the, in, in, my, in my little office here at home. Uh, I never thought I would ever do that. Launched in 2018, Bepi Colombo is on its way to Mercury. But in April, it flew past Earth, a critical manoeuvre to adjust its speed and trajectory and a major event for the mission team. But most remained at home, with only a small socially distanced group in mission control to monitor the spacecraft. We had to get used to work differently, to coordinate differently among the team members. This had some overhead for sure. But overall, I have to say we've been also supported by a very stable spacecraft. The trajectory was so stable that we didn't have to do trajectory correction manoeuvres beyond the one we did on the 26th of February. After that, we didn't have to do any uh, more. And uh, the platform itself was also very well behaved. And this helps a lot in these conditions, of course. 
Not everyone's been so fortunate. Since 2002, ESA's integral mission has been successfully observing violent cosmic explosions such as gamma-ray bursts. Then, on the 13th of April, power systems on the spacecraft suddenly reset, probably due to the effect of a cosmic ray. Integrals started to rotate, exposing delicate instruments to the heat of the sun. With the spacecraft switched to safe mode, the team used an emergency procedure developed almost 20 years ago to restore operations. We had just the one engineer on site, uh, and then another engineer connected from home to the mission control system and shared his desktop with the entire team. So we were sitting at home with a shared control system desktop, one guy on site and my old procedure. And uh, it worked, but it was, a, it was a totally different work experience. Very interesting, very interesting day. Another ESOC team has been working hard, at home, to avoid the unexpected. With Earth surrounded by a cloud of space debris, analysts plot satellite positions and plan manoeuvres to prevent collision. Several satellites have had to be manoeuvred to avoid risky debris objects. Even new capabilities are being added. Testing of ESA's laser space communication system is underway between the new EDRSC and Sentinel satellites. And data from ESA's science and Earth observation missions continues to flow, revealing new discoveries and providing vital information on, for example, weather, climate and pollution. They are essential data for our economy, for our people, for the environment, uh, for our planet. Uh, so we have... Uh, continuously deliver this data. There has been only a very, very tiny reduction in the use of this data because we deliver nominally and all the data provided to the community as uh, in other times, as in normal uh, times outside the crisis. Thanks to preparations made over the last few years to plan for an emergency, ESOC has been able to quickly adapt to home working. And that report from ESA TV featured Bepi Colombo, Spacecraft Operations Manager Elsa Montagnon, Integral Spacecraft Operations Manager Richard Southworth, and ESA's Director of Earth Observation Programs, Josef Aschenbecher. This is Space Time. And time now to take another look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new swine flu with pandemic potential has been identified in China. A report in the journal PNAS says the new G4 strain has already infected 10% of industry workers and over 4% of the general population in China. G4 is based on the H1N1 strain, which caused a global pandemic in 2009. Tests on the new strain, which has been in the general population since 2016, shows it to be highly infectious, quickly replicating in human cells. But the virus is not considered dangerous in its current form. Still, scientists have warned that given the unpredictability of influenza viruses, a vaccine should be developed. A new study warns that the South Pole is now warming at a rate three times higher than the global average. Researchers analysed weather station data and climate models to examine temperature changes at the South Pole since 1989. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Climate Change, suggest the warming is being driven both by natural climate variability and by increases in greenhouse gases. They say their research can help inform future modelling of climate change over the Antarctic interior. 
a giant wombat-like marsupial which roamed prehistoric Australia 25 million years ago is so different from its wombat cousins today that scientists have had to create an entirely new family in order to accommodate it. The findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, are based on a fossilised partial skull and other skeletal remains of Mukuperma nambinensis, which were unearthed from the clay floor of Lake Pimpa, a remote dry salt lake east of the Flinders Ranges in South Australia in 1973. Paleontologists say the animal was over four times the size of any living wombats today and may have weighed as much as 150 kilograms. The new family adds a huge new piece to the puzzle about the diversity of ancient and often seriously strange marsupials that preceded those which rule the Australian continent today. The largest known vombatiform marsupial was the relatively recent Diprotodon, which weighed more than two tons and was still around feeding on vegetation 50,000 years ago. A massive explosion at Iranian nuclear research facility and missile factory may have been the result of an Israeli cyber attack. The Islamic Republic claims the blast was caused by a leak at a civilian gas storage site 20 kilometres east of Tehran. However, satellite images show the explosion actually occurred within the missile factory itself, which is near the Pacha military base. International Atomic Energy Agency nuclear inspectors visited the Pacha military facility about five years ago. That followed years of standoffs with the Iranian authorities, while Islamic Revolutionary Guards were removing truckloads of highly secret equipment from the base. The renovations at the facility were so extensive that it led to suspicions that Tehran might have been trying to hide past work on nuclear detonation technologies. Interestingly, within an hour of the Parchin blast, a large area around Shiraz, about a thousand kilometres south of Tehran, which just happens to have a large military base on it, was suddenly blacked out. Both American and Israeli intelligence officials insist that they had nothing to do with the blast. But security experts say the attack appears to be part of an ongoing cyber war between Jerusalem and Tehran. That saw Iran try to poison Israel's water supply back in April by attempting to gain control of systems which feed chemicals to purify the water supply for human consumption. Israel retaliated by shutting down one of Iran's major ports for several days, triggering a huge traffic jam. A new study shows people are more likely to interpret casual unrelated events as being part of a pattern if they already have a belief in pseudoscience. The findings, reported in the British Journal of Psychology, are based on a study of 225 psychology students who were asked to judge the effectiveness of a fictional Amazonian herb in curing headaches. The subjects were shown a series of 48 medical records describing patients suffering the headaches who either did or did not receive the fictitious herbs. They were told the headache disappeared in 27 patients who had ingested the herb and 9 patients who had not. It also showed that headaches continued with a further 9 patients who had ingested the herb and 3 who did not. So in actual fact, the rate of headache remission was statistically independent of the patients taking or not taking the herb. Yet most participants perceived some degree of causal relationship between the herb and the headache disappearing. The authors also found those who believed there was a stronger connection also tended to endorse more pseudoscientific beliefs, such as a belief that an optimistic attitude helps prevent cancer or that homeopathic remedies are effective. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says it's fascinating how easily people can believe in facts that aren't real. That's pretty 
pretty well, yeah, true. Or, or they or they think that because A happens and B happens at a similar time, A causes B. And that's the causality, which really sort of uh, doesn't necessarily exist at all. And it's also trying to find a link between, yeah, a reason why I've got B, why is B happening, and you'll find anything and create a link to it. When really you might have to say eventually, I just don't know, and this has happened because things do happen out of, out of, by themselves, or not actually by themselves, but certainly without a known cause as far as you're concerned. But there's obviously biases there that people trying to find a cause for everything. And it's often because they have a conspiratorial frame of mind and looking for a conspiracy as, as the cause of what's happening to them. So they trip over and hurt themselves or they lose a job and therefore naturally it's a conspiracy by someone out to get them. And it was just sort of sad actually, but uh, that's, that's the way the human brain works. But it often does try and find links between things and even if they're totally tenuous links, they'll sort of stick to them as much as possible. And it's very easy to fool people into believing there's a link between one and the other. I mean, the obvious one that's happening over the last 20, 30 years is the link between, the link in quotes, I should add, between vaccination and um, autism yeah, because the vaccinations happen at a certain age of, of a child and autism is recognised at a certain age of a child. People think A equals B and uh, it doesn't. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever, but people continue to believe it and to make the claim regardless. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. Space Time is broadcast on Science Zone Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. and through both iHeartRadio and on TuneIn Radio. Or you can subscribe and download Space Time as a free podcast through Apple, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Audioboom, Podbeam, Android, CastBox, from spacetimewithstuartgary.com or from your favourite download podcast provider. You can help support the show and the work we do by visiting the Spacetime online shop and grabbing yourself a few goodies or by becoming a Spacetime patron which gives you access to commercial-free double-episode versions of the show as well as bonus audio content and other rewards. Just go to our Patreon page through spacetimewithstuartgary.com for all the details. If you want more space time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpaceTimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our SpaceTime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash SpaceTimeWithStuartGary. SpaceTime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to SpaceTime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 